This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Adfontis Media, home of the interactive media bias chart, now including lessons in Adfontis' news analysis methodology. The interactive media bias chart lets students and teachers search bias and reliability ratings on more than 1,500 news and news-like sources, whether text, TV, or podcast. Search a limited number for free or upgrade to get enhanced or unlimited access for your students and faculty. Get all the details by searching adfontis at edcuration.com. Critical race theory. 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 We're hearing a lot about it, and it's increasingly difficult to separate fact from fallacy. The topic has exploded in K-12 education, with numerous state legislatures debating bills seeking to ban its use in the classroom. It's become a political issue with liberals and conservatives in sharp disagreement, and teachers are caught in the middle of a maelstrom. With everyone needing a lot more clarity, we reached out to Edweek's award-winning associate editor, Stephen Sachuk, who has tracked this controversy and written extensively on the subject as he covers teaching and curriculum for the newspaper. Before I was a journalist, so we're going back 15 years, um, you know, I, I actually, I had a liberal arts background. I have a master's in English literature and it's helped me with this critical race theory, understanding this because there's actually sort of a long intellectual history that comes along with this. There's a common misconception, I think, that I also held before I started reading about this, that this was something new, that this was some new topic or trend that has come up. And so can you give us just a little bit of a nutshell of the history of critical race theory to get us started? Sure. And I'm going to start here by telling you about what it what it is like historically. It's sort of evolved from the, you know, the original idea that that is really from the late 70s and early 80s. Um, and so this is a period where, um, you know, about 15 years after the civil rights era and, and you have these legal scholars like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw who are wondering, you know, we, we have these laws, these guarantees, why haven't things improved more for Black Americans? These, these, these guarantees have been written in the law, Voting Rights, um, Fair Housing Act, um, Civil Rights Act. You can inscribe into law things that entrench disparate outcomes, um, even if the laws themselves seem to be race blind. So um, I'll give you a, an example. Um, you, you may remember that, that there were racially restrictive housing covenants um, that neighborhoods or, or, you know, sometimes they were even attached to deeds. So the Supreme Court outlaws that in 1948. And then the Fair Housing Act passes in 1968. But today, if you look at housing patterns and where communities are located, they, they continue to show, um, you know, very similar patterns to what we saw beforehand. Another good one is mandatory sentencing guidelines. Again, that's seemingly race neutral, but um, when you look at the composition of the criminal justice system, it's disproportionately black. And so therefore these mandatory sentencing guidelines lead to um, you know, the disproportionate incarceration of black Americans. CRT takes a look at outcomes and the systems that lead to them. Just to reiterate and further clarify this very important point, critical race theory was developed in the late 1970s and early 1980s as a lens through which to evaluate legislation and public policy. 
It allows us to look at policies like fair housing or mandatory sentencing guidelines and examine the wording, intentions, and implementation and compare those to the actual outcomes for various populations to see if those outcomes are indeed equitable. That's what it is. It's an analytical tool providing a way of thinking about policy. It is a lot less interested in individual racism and prejudices. Um, and, and I think that's a big um, leap for a lot of people to make because I think when we talk in sort of everyday parlance about racism, you tend to think of, oh, my great aunt who says these horrible things every time I meet her for tea or at the Thanksgiving dinner table. And critical race theory is much more interested in systems than it is in individual prejudices and biases. So that by definition, it's not a curriculum. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a book. It's not a lesson plan. It's, it's sort of a way of thinking about structures. Okay. That, so that is another of the big misconceptions, besides the fact that people are thinking that this is some new thing, that it is a curriculum. And it's not, but there are curriculums that draw explicitly on critical race theory. Am I right about that? It's hard to say because curriculum in the United States is not set at the federal level. It's not really set at the state level. It's set locally. And so usually the way this happens is you have this panel of educators, it's parents and teachers, and they select textbooks. And then, you know, beyond that, you have over 3 million public school teachers in the country, right? And so each of them is writing their daily, their lessons for daily classwork. So um, it, it starts to be hard to say with any certainty, you know, what's going on in 130,000 different schools. My perception from just talking to district leaders and teachers and, and other people is that, you know, the concept of systemic racism, which is really what critical race theory is about, it's very hard to understand, right? Um, and so I think it's unlikely that teachers are explicitly trying to teach these ideas in their in their classes. I think what is more likely is that there are teachers that are asking students to think about inequality either in their own lives or in their communities. Um, or, you know, obviously this comes as, I think, often as a theme in history class and, um, you know, in, in literature courses, right, where people might trace some of those ideas of inequality. And, um, but I think it's less likely that anyone's sort of formally trying to teach Derek Bell or Kimberly Crenshaw in the classroom. Yeah. Well, so critical race theory is getting blamed for a lot of stuff. Why are we so confused about this? You know, so to a large extent, I think it's because a lot of, of people are lumping like other things under it. And it starts to be hard, right, to draw the specific boundaries between these things. Um, So I can tell you about two things that I think are often um, getting you know, sort of caught up with this very academic yeah. discipline. Uh-huh. One is that I think a lot of people are conflating what we would call diversity training more generally mm. with critical race theory. And so I want to be clear, like usually when we're talking diversity training in a school setting, this is training for the adults. It's not training for the students, right? You know, we also know that the research on trying to train people to be less biased is, is um, it, it doesn't seem to be particularly effective. It, it hasn't been much studied and it doesn't right now seem to be all that effective. Um, I understand why districts are trying to do this training. I mean, we have a teaching force that is uh, something like 79 or 80% um, white and mostly white women. And 
um, our school-aged population is now over half non-white, right? So like, you know, districts see that there's potentially like a mismatch, a problem here, um, and they're trying to bridge this gap. So that's one thing I think gets wrapped up into this. Um, the second point, and this is a little harder, is that you have these popular bestsellers on race that have come out recently. And so I'm thinking about books like... Um, how to, can be you, how to be how to be an anti-racist there you took the words right out of my mouth um, mm-hmm. Robin Angela has a book white fragility so sometimes when people are talking about critical race theory they're really talking about um these very recent uh books that have come out you know after George Floyd there was I think this this moment of reckoning in America about um what are we seeing here and what does it mean mm-hmm. so that's really helpful give our listeners kind of a granular picture of what, how is this impacting classrooms other than um, that the teachers are receiving and staff, faculties are receiving a lot more training in the areas of diversity, equity, inclusion, right. justifiably so, necessary, um, some good, some bad. But is this impacting instruction in classrooms to the extent that we're being led to believe in the media? You know, again, hard to say because we've got so many classrooms and schools. Um, what I will say is that there are a few things that are are being caught up in here that um, that I do think uh, educators are worried about. Um, so, for example, one of the things that you hear a lot about is is what we emphasize in history, um, and 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 there. And this is again not a particularly new concern right so mm-hmm. over the years right there's there have been the, the this 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 debate about the balance in history class do we focus on patriotism do we focus on some of the genius ways the constitution was framed or you know to what extent do we talk about or emphasize you know the critique of some of the really you know kind of awful things that you know that we've had in our history mm-hmm. i mean um slavery and the history of enslaved people is is one of them um, but also, you know, the removal of Indigenous Americans. I mean, these are very, very hard topics. And so sometimes what we hear now are, um, are people using, I think, the, the moniker of critical race theory to um, critique that balance, right, between those two um, polls. You know, this is, this, is, this is difficult, right? Like, I mean, Jim Crow was state-sponsored racism that held sway for decades, and that's just a fact, but it is hard history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen some parents, you know, challenge specific books. Um, in Tennessee, there was, you know, a book about Ruby Bridges. This is for younger children. Uh, she helped, of course, integrate New Orleans schools in 1960. Um, you know, and I, I actually was just, I was thinking back to myself before we talked, like, what was a book that was hard for me to read at that age? And I thought of Farewell to Manzanar, which um, is about Japanese American internment. Mm-hmm. And I think we yeah. did that in, in either sixth or seventh grade. Look, these books, you know, they have challenging ideas for students. And we can have an absolutely, we can have a lively discussion about at what grade level you introduce them. Um, I think another thing, right, is, is what gets confusing here is content versus teaching methods. Um, and we, we're not focused so much on what are the appropriate ways to introduce students to these challenging topics in a way that supports kids, you know, doesn't terrify them, doesn't, you know, um, sometimes you hear people say, well, if we teach students this, they're going to feel bad. They're going to feel somehow, you know, guilty for this. Um, and I think that you can avoid that through careful teaching, but you know, we have to, but that, that's delicate. That's, that's difficult. That takes a lot of skill as a teacher to do well. So some, some of what we're seeing is, 
Um, I think people are mixing content and what we would call pedagogy, right? Like the teaching yeah. methods. You know, in Texas, there's been a push to remove certain books from classroom or from school libraries. Uh, I think you, we're starting to see a degree of censorship under the name of defending against critical race theory. And I think that we need to be really very careful about that. You can't ban a lens, an idea, a way of looking at things. You you could ban a curriculum, but you can't ban a way of thinking, first right. of all. So it's kind of misled. and critical race theory is becoming this umbrella. Right, right. It's a morphing term for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's getting us away from the, the core conversation and the kinds of conversations we should be having um, about the proper handling of certain content and delivery of certain content is what I hear you saying. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, which is fabulous. I'm hoping that you can help us understand what are the components of this, of the controversy. Where is all the fuss coming from? Because, and let me just, I'm going to read to you your own words. Okay. Um, You wrote, (laughs) one of of your articles, you wrote, scholars who study critical race theory in education, look at how policies and practices in K-12 education contribute to persistent racial inequalities in education and advocate for ways to change them. I can't imagine anyone wanting to argue with that. And then you go on among the topics they've studied, racially segregated schools, the underfunding of majority black and Latino school districts, disproportionate disciplining of black students, barriers to gifted programs and selective admission high schools and curricula that reinforce racist ideas. So these are all important things that I can't imagine anyone having a problem with arguing against not wanting to support um, except maybe a white supremacist and well I'll tell you what my what my um, thought on, on that is right is is I don't think people are necessarily objecting to the fact that people are studying these things it's not okay. objection to the research per se mm-hmm. it's more about how that ends up informing what what policymakers um, try to do to fix this. So let's just take like the discipline data, right? When, when So when you look at these patterns and you see that black students are suspended and expelled at disproportionately high rates compared to like, you know, the proportion of the student body they make up. I mean, then you have this question to answer, right? And you can either say, well, this is the fault of the kids and, you know, hope, I, I, yeah, I, I look, I, I don't think that, I think that's not, the right conclusion to draw, or you can think it points to some larger problem in schools and society, right? Um, and then you start to ask questions. Well, is this because we've drawn school boundaries or we're staffing classrooms in inequitable ways? Like, you know, what what is the sort of the root cause of these problems? Is it because of out-of-school factors? Is it because of generation policy? You know, like you can, you can sort of ask a lot of questions about that. But ultimately, if you want to fix it, you have to pull public policy lovers, right? And whenever you start trying to do that, you know, I think it starts to get um, harder, right? Like you, when you're trying to undo, you know, barriers, you, you, you tend to get a lot of resistance, right? I think the classic example of this is, um, well, in New York City, for example, right? Like there's been discussion about, should we still have this gifted education track, right? Which starts very, very early in New York City. It starts at like age four, you know, they're testing kids to get in this gifted track, right? You have selective high schools, you know, these you know, these 
policies, and I have no, you know, no doubt that they were put in place because people wanted to do good things for kids, right? But when you look at who's in them, it's mostly the white kids. And so there's, there's, there's been this push to, you know, well, how can we make, give more opportunities to other students, right? Like, do we, do we sort of stop doing gifted at such a young age? Should, is, is there a way to redo the selective admissions so it's not, you know, benefiting families that tend to be wealthier and they can hire tutors for, you know, writing your applications, essays and all that kind of thing, right? Like there is a huge backlash to that because that system has served like a, a you know, a, a population of families in New York City very well. And I think there's this fear that somehow they'll have to give that up. That's where we are, right? Like there, there's palpable fear and very much that fear of, you know, if we talk about this in the classroom, my, my child will be hurt. I, I feel like from what I've heard some critics and opponents voicing is that it's a misrepresentation of history designed specifically for the purpose of shaming white people. That's a misunderstanding. Look, I think history is really hard. And I think the way we have tended to teach it has tended to focus on um, the patriotic and look like there's a lot to, to, celebrate in, you know, the amazing crafting of a constitutional, you know, system that has, you know, that has been a model for so many other places and and has um, been self-sustaining for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, but obviously, you know, the founding fathers themselves were very much a mixed pack when it came to things like, you know, to whom they believe these unalienable rights apply to. And the country is, you know, I mean, much of our history has been trying to, to expand that to to all Americans, right? There's just this real fear that somehow students won't love America. They won't, Mm. you know, they won't feel, you know, this, this um, commitment to improving it if they hear those things. Um, You know, I don't know that we have a ton of research on, on how the way one is taught history shapes one's values. I can tell you for certain, right, that I was um, 37 before I learned that the Federal Housing Authority in 1934 comes up with redlining, right? Like, I mean, and I was so mad. I was so furious that nobody had told me that. I felt like I had been lied to, you know what I mean? And so, um, you know, so that, although that is a difficult topic, I think, to, to learn about, it feels important. I was in my 40s before I ever read anything about the Tulsa race riots. Right. I never, I didn't even know. Well, even there, I mean, you know, now people call it a, a sort of the Tulsa race massacre. It used to be the Tulsa yeah. race riots, right? Even our way yeah. of talking about it has shifted along with the, mm-hmm. um, you know, historiographic evidence, incorporating the voices of people whose stories weren't necessarily told 50 years ago. Right. So you would say that the opponents, um, the people that we're hearing, first of all, who, who are the opponents? It, are we hearing from teachers? Are, are teachers objecting to this instruction? Is it parents mostly? Who is it? You know, um, that, that's a good question. There's the conservative groups that, that um, you know, have been very, very um, concerned about this, like um, concerned about some of the diversity training practices that mm-hmm. I spoke about a little bit earlier. I, I think most teachers would say they have do not teach critical race theory. A lot of them, I think, quite frankly, would say they've never heard of it. What I get worried about is that teachers will try to self-censor or they they will yeah. simply not talk about some things that I think, you know, that are, are really important um, and germane. I, I, I did a series on uh, civic 
civics education for education week when we had the you know the beginning of the the first um, Trump impeachment and and all of that and I can't tell you the number of teachers that said they just didn't want to talk about that in the classroom because it felt so political and they were so afraid of um, you know getting in trouble with parents sometimes administrators were telling them do not you know do not do current events discussion based on the news of this Um, that is very disturbing I certainly think it's fair to wonder whether teachers have the skills and the tools they need to talk about these concepts in ways yeah. that are appropriate, but I don't think that we want teachers to just not do it, right? To just right. like not talk about it when, when kids come to class asking about, you know, difficult things, you yeah. know? I mean, this is the thing, right? Like, you know, if, 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 if students are not being helped, structured, supported to, um, you know, talk about something like the impeachment or talk about George Floyd. I mean, they're getting it somewhere, right? They're on TikTok. They're at home with whatever news channel their parents have on. Like they were going to get the information somewhere. And I would rather them, you know, have a chance to digest and talk about it in a classroom with a really skilled teacher, I think, than, um, you know, just randomly through whatever they read on social media. I yeah. Mean, I mean, the question as to whether teachers have the skill and feel comfortable facilitating these conversations is totally fair. Right. Because a lot and of- I don't need to bash teachers at all. I mean, like, I just, I mean, when I, when I think about this and I try to think, how would I structure a lesson on this? I mean, you know, it is really hard to think about it. It is hard. And one of the best ways to facilitate discussion around tough topics is to equip students to read critically assess the sources of the messages that they're receiving and to become discerning and wise consumers of information themselves. Media literacy is essential for all of us, students, parents, and educators at every level. And today's sponsor, AdFontis Media, has just what you need to incorporate these skills across the content areas. Hi, this is Vanessa Otero, founder and CEO of AdFontis Media. We are proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. At Ed Fontes, we believe junk news is like junk food. And just as junk food has caused health epidemics in our country, junk news is causing polarization and misinformation epidemics. That's why we've created our Media Bias Chart educational tools, so students can learn how to make better, healthier choices about the news they consume. Find AdFontis at edcuration.com and access their free media bias chart to help your students gain accurate and balanced understanding of important issues. Certainly there are some teachers that are doing it, but I think there are others that, you know, are overwhelmed. You know, they've got a lot of state standards to cover. They've got a set things coming up. They're just not going to stick their neck out to do. Well, and teachers shouldn't be forced, but they also shouldn't be stifled. And if we are not creating the space, a safe space, a structure and a model for students of how to have these conversations in mutually respectful and constructive ways, Mm -hmm. where are they going to see it? Because they're not seeing it on the national level. You know, another thing too that I think is important, right, is that um, is that some of these tensions have been around for quite a long time, 
I think it is not unusual for social anxieties to play out in a school setting sometimes, right? And, and sometimes I think that's what's happening with this debate. I'll give you some examples. In the 1930s, you know, there was, um, there was a set of progressive textbooks that, you know, wanted students to think about sort of what we would call class inequality, right? And in the 1930s, you had people saying, look, they're trying to teach Marxism. And then in the 1950s, there was Sputnik. And then there was this huge concern that our math and science education was not up to snuff. And in the Cold War in the 80s, we get a nation at risk, which says that, that we're not globally competitive in education. Um, and so I wonder if, if we're seeing it play out in the anxieties of schooling the way we have with some of these other huge major social mm. um, impacts that we have. Yeah, um, that makes sense. And one of my one thing I wanted to ask you about is that why now, if this critical race theory has been around for 40 years, why is there suddenly this controversy and all of this media exposure? And I think you just answered that question. Yeah. yeah. Current events have brought it to the surface. I think so. Yeah. Without sounding critical to the critics, mm-hmm. I'm just curious if you can pinpoint what you think are the fears. What are the concerns? One of the things you hear is, you know, somehow we're going to divide students into, you know, categories of privileged and oppressed and, you know, somehow they're, you know, that, that, um, that that will be, it'll make some feel guilty. It'll make others feel sort of helpless and victimized. You know, um, I'm not even entirely sure where that those, you know, those, that framing even comes from, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I, I, it's, it's funny. I hear that often and I have yet to find like the original sort of um, source for it. Uh, I think. Um, Do we have any data or anecdotal evidence of that? Happening? I, it's, I, I, you know, I mean, like, look, like there's a lot of classrooms, like you can go on social media and find a couple, you know, you know, one or two sort of viral things that, you know, where you look at them and you think, well, yeah, that wasn't a particularly good lesson, right? Like where yeah. it wasn't well-structured or it's a symptom of sort of generalized anxiety about demographic change, um, you know, and about, I think it could be any number of different things. So, okay. I do want to talk about legislation. Let's now. do it. Let's talk about um, the legislation. You can't really ban critical race theory. It's not concrete. It's not a, it's not a curriculum. So, but however, as of mid-May legislation purporting to outlaw CRT in schools has passed in Idaho, Iowa, Oklahoma, and Tennessee and has been proposed in other states, in other state houses. Quick update. The article I referred to in this interview was written in May of 2021. According to the Edweek tracker, there are currently 41 states that have introduced bills and taken other steps to restrict how teachers can discuss racism or sexism. 14 states have passed legislation, 20 other states have proposed bills that are moving through the legislative process, and seven states have bills that have been vetoed or are stalled. So what I'm curious about is like, how can this be, how can this be enforced? And will teachers be found in violation? Will they be prosecuted? What what does this even mean, this legislation? You know, the, the, the text of them differs. A lot of them is very similar to that executive order that um, the former President Trump passed. It's like, you know, uh, anything that would, would make f- people feel, you know, um, you know uh, um, 
guilt or anguish. I have to go look at the exact letter, but you know, a lot about making kids feel guilty, dividing people into oppressor and oppressed, you know, so they differ. Um, you asked a great question about enforcement and this is yeah. again, different from place to place. So um, in New Hampshire teachers can get fined and I think the amount is up to 500 per incident or something. Uh, there are a few other states where, um, you know, there's actually, you know, sort of, um, you know, teachers being threatened with loss of employment. Um, we do not know yet uh, how this is going to play out. And the reason is, is because the complaints, the first set of like sort of complaints from parents or whomever is, is only sort of starting to come in. And, um, you know, as journalists, we make open record requests to see who is filing these mm -hmm. and then what the state is doing. And this sort of differs, right? Because I think in, in some states, the, the complaint goes to the district level and others it goes up to the state but one of the things my newspaper wants to do is actually just like look and see like what are the themes that come up over and over and over again so Stephen, who is it very specific in these laws what constitutes a violation and who gets to decide it's vague and it's hard to tell what specifically does this apply apply to right and and that's what we're going to see from the complaints is how are people interpreting this? What are they challenging? And how is the the um, the state or the district or whomever it is like? How are they going to interpret and and like sort of enforce? My hunch is that um, that what we will see are teachers self censoring. As th that that will be the primary impact of these laws, right? P teachers just not bringing up things. Um, I don't think we're necessarily going to see like mass firing of teachers or anything like that. And I think that's because A, that looks really draconian and terrible. And B, so many districts are having such a hard time staffing, right? They don't they, have enough teachers. So is it going to come down to a list of banned topics and texts? And if so, um, what kind of precedence is that you know, for anything you know, that upsets somebody? It's a really good question. I, you know, so the, um, it's only in one state so far, I think, where we've seen like specific titles of specific volumes that have been, um, that are sort of uh, being, you know, looked at. Is this going to open a floodgate for any parent who wants to dictate what can and can't be said in a classroom? You know, parents have always had a say over what is said. Look, like every teacher out there knows, right, right. that they've had dealt with a parent who didn't like something that right. was in. A, I, you know, that is not a new, um, not a new phenomenon. And there have been states. In fact, Florida has something on the books already that allows a parent to challenge specific pieces of the curriculum, and it kind of goes to this quasi-judicial hearing thing. You know, and that was before all the critical race theory stuff. That that happened. You know. Uh, I think that was passed in 16 or 17, right? So, well, I think it is possible that this will, you know, result in more, you know, parents doing this. I think it's equally possible that, you know, maybe the, um, this issue um, stops being so fraught. Maybe not, right? Because, you know, I think, you know, obviously I think there is a political element to this. So it's possible it'll just be in the zeitgeist because, you know, it, it has taken on a political dimension. But I think it's also possible that, you know, that 
parents are busy and, you know, and actually mostly when you look at surveys about teachers, they tend to trust teachers and they tend to trust their schools. So it's not clear to me, right, like the scope of, of how that'll play out. You know, the implication that this could lead to censorship at some level, I think should be concerning. Yeah. So what advice do you have for the educator who is caught in the middle of the controversy and who is wondering how to proceed, how to play their cards? Well, so I'm always a little lost to give advice to teachers because states have such different laws about um, tenure, due process, whether they're covered by a bargaining agreement or not. You know, um, the parameters are very local. Um, I will say this. I think one thing they can do is remember that every state sets standards for what students should know and be able to do. Um, and, you know, in social studies and history, there are lists of content that have to be covered. And, you know, typically they do include things like slavery, integration, civil rights. Um, I think always for history teachers, teaching with primary sources is a very powerful lever. You know, did the person who wrote, you know, experience or observe this, you know, you know, what biases might they have come into that kind of thing. I mean, there's a lot of rich conversations you can have about that. I think asking open-ended questions about, um, you know, patterns that students see in history are important, um, you know, and I think a lot of that is just, you know, good teaching as part of the social studies. You know, one of the books we heard about that, um, that people were uncomfortable with is Toni Morrison, right? You know, Beloved is that is a book about a very difficult, it's a difficult book from a literary perspective. It's elusive, it's metaphoric, right? But it also talks in great details about the horrors of, um, you know, one of the most shameful aspects of our, our history. And, um, you know, and I think that combination makes it, you know, a worthy, te- I mean, she won the Nobel Prize. Her body of work is amazing and it has core things to say, right? About, you know, about the American experience and the history of being like, you know, black in America, right? And so I think that's important. And I think the case you make for that is the state standards for literature ask students to grapple with difficult texts, elusive texts, right? This is part of preparing students for um, college, for careers. Um, I, I think, you know, teachers can um, just teach strong lessons um, focused on the standards that they need to cover. and. Um, and uh, hopefully they have the support and backing from administrators to do that. You know, as you and I have mentioned a couple of times, I think um, we need more of a, a discussion in K through 12 about, um, you know, how teachers can scaffold lessons on tough or controversial topics. I, um, I agree. I used to, and, and honestly, we're mostly speaking to, my guess is we're mostly speaking about primarily secondary, middle school and high school, English language arts, literature, social studies, history, teachers are the ones who are going to have to grapple with this. I think they're going to have the most problems. I think some of it starts, um, you know, um, earlier. And and really there it comes down to at what grade level do you talk about really hard history, right? I mean, I'm just trying to think actually the other day, like how old was I before I I understood, you know, what civil rights was or what slavery was? I think you're right about the scaffolding thing. I used to, um, I was an English teacher for many, many years. And then I worked for an English language arts company and I was a, a literacy coach. And one of our texts, one of the texts that we used, I think it was in ninth grade unit was Flannery O'Connor, 
a good man is hard to find. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> I mean, and there was, it's, um, it's brilliantly written text and it's so rich as far as the kinds of discussions that it can generate in a classroom. But we finally just had to take it out because year after year, there was so much pushback from teachers feeling like they didn't know how to present this text in a I mean, way. That, that is a great example, right? Because it is a violent story. Violent story. Um, a terrifying story. Full of pejorative uh, language. There's a lot to, to talk about there. And what you don't want is for teachers to have something really hard and not feel like they have the ability to do it in a way that's going to be. Yeah, that good. they want to navigate it. These are frankly, you know, very deep pedagogical questions, right? Like, because I mean, not everything is, is well oriented towards inquiry, right? Like sometimes you need to do direct instruction, right? And I think the right mixture and recipe is plays into this, this question, right? Like finding that balance is hard. Finding the balance is hard. I mean, even in the education schools, you know, you know, scholars that study this argue all the time still about the right balance of these two approaches. So it's not surprising to me, right, that that, um, you know, that we have a disagreement about content, but also about the right way to structure the content for kids. I mean, these are very old and longstanding. And I think that's really what we if we want to support teachers in doing this work, that's what we have to, you know, think about. Um, yeah. So, but I guess to bring, you know, bring us back to the, you know, the topic of this conversation, um, I, I, I just think, you know, I, I worry about, um, you know, this dialogue about critical race theory, meaning that we, we sort of wander down, especially history and civics about difficult, challenging, but important conversations for young students to have, right? I mean, I don't want that to happen. I, I just don't think there's a lot of evidence that the teachers are trying to indoctrinate students into any kind of way of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and I do think, you know, and I guess the final thing I'd say is I think, you know, we're seeing this partially as a, as a, a, a symptom of anxieties that Americans have about their country in this moment and the way it's changing. All I know is that we're going to do our best to try to shed um, light and not heat on this issue at EdWave. We've really been trying to be judicious in our pieces because we don't want to, um, well, we don't want the coverage to be hysterical and we don't want to like whip up further you know, frenzy and fury about it. We just want to try to help people understand, well, what is this actually going to mean for, you know, our public school teachers and all of our students. You'll find links to Stephen Sawchuk's articles about critical race theory, along with a helpful video that he made and the updated Ed Week map on litigation and legislation regarding critical race theory across all 50 states in the episode notes. You'll also find a link to today's sponsor, AdFontis Media, home of the Media Bias Chart, now including the Summa News Literacy course, introducing students to the chart's methodology. Secondary English language arts teacher Donna Hyatt of Marion, North Carolina writes, this will be my second full school year teaching media news literacy in a secondary setting. I want to express how much I have learned from teaching this skill set to my students. I have taught it to five different classes now and each seem to have enjoyed it while learning to move beyond a novice news consumer. 
You can learn more about Adfontis Media's Media Bias Chart Educator Editions, as well as the course materials covering its methodology. Just search Adfontis at edcuration.com, E-D-C-U-R-A-T-I-O-N, and click the Connect to Vendor button to get started. And while you're there, check out our free micro-professional learning explorations our upcoming events, and our certified ed trustee program that allows you to try curriculum and other resources before you buy. You'll also find all of our other podcast episodes. And if you found this episode helpful, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leave us a comment or a review and join us again on the Ed Curation Podcast, where we're reshaping learning.